No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. This episode is a conversation with four first-time rural women counselors, all serving in small communities across Ontario. They talk about what their experience has been both before the election, while they were campaigning, and now 100 days into their term. They talk about challenging stereotypes that rural folks may have about women in governance, the importance of clear communication. They talk about the privilege they have and what a privilege it still is to be able to run a campaign and that all of them would give up their seats to see more intersectional representation. Kelsey Van Bellingham is a counselor in Kenora, Ontario. Born and raised in Kimberley, BC and a lifelong seasonal resident of Lake of the Woods, Kelsey has been a permanent resident in Kenora since 2017, when she met her now husband. They have two young children, and while at the tail end of her maternity leave with her second, she decided to run for council. As a person with privilege and ability, she is well aware of the need for diverse voices when it comes to governance and leadership. Similar to financial assets, quote, You don't want all your eggs in one basket. And she ran on that platform during her candidacy. She is returning to work shortly as a member advisor at the credit union in Kenora and in her last term as treasurer for the women's shelter, Sakate House. Lindsay Wilson is deputy mayor in Ingersoll, Ontario. Lindsay has spent the last decade working in rural community economic development. She often focuses on advocating for the full representation and participation of women in their communities. 
In 2021, she volunteered to launch Municipal Campaign School Oxford, a grassroots effort to support women running and winning their campaign. In 2022, she was elected as Deputy Mayor of Ingersoll, the first woman to serve in that position. Alison Story is a counselor in Chatham, Kent, Ontario. Born and raised in Chatham, Alison returned to her hometown after working in the private and public sectors across Canada and Europe. A communications and strategic planning consultant, Alison found herself thrust into an advocacy role almost overnight. Outraged by the deaths of a close friend and her young daughter in a preventable crossover collision on Highway 401, she founded Build the Barrier, a grassroots group of volunteers lobbying for improved safety standards on Highway 401 west of London. This experience of public advocacy was an unexpectedly transformative one and led to her running for mayor of Chatham-Kent in 2018, where she placed second. And she was successful in being elected as councillor in 2022. Kate Leatherbarrow is a councillor in Woodstock, Ontario. Kate is the owner of the Early Bird Cafe in downtown Woodstock, a wife and a mother to four. She ran in the last municipal election, but she narrowly missed a council seat by just 59 votes. Kate, along with Lindsay Wilson, co-founded the Municipal Campaign School of Oxford County, which encourages women and other diverse voices to become involved in local politics. Communication is number one on Kate's agenda. You are all first-time municipal councillors. What barriers did you face even to get to that position? Kelsey, go ahead. For myself, personally, I am a, also a new member of my community person, or like permanently. So I've been a seasonal resident of Kenora, Ontario, my entire existence since I came out of the womb, but I've only been a permanent resident in this community for about seven years now. And I think this is a thing across all rural municipalities of like being a local. Um, so there's that sort of hurdle of having to do an extreme amount of legwork throughout the um, campaign that had I had a name or a, maybe more of a reputation in the in the um, community, it may be would have been a little bit easier. But the thing that I knew was that I have so much privilege in order to do this. In order to be able to run for this role, you have to have so much privilege. And I'm a person who had the privilege based on where I am in my life stage. And it was imperative for me to do that work in order to make sure that I'm that I'm able to make a platform so that people you don't have to have so much privilege to do this. This job is what my my hope is out of this because I'm a um a financial advisor by trade. And so, you know, if I'm talking to someone about their investments, it's it's important to have not all your eggs in one basket, right? You don't want all of your money sitting in one place. And and I always think that's equally true when it comes to any kind of representation. You don't want the voices who are speaking to you all coming from one place. There's just risks in that because we all only know what we know. So I knew that I sort of had this ability to 
to once I get into the job to be able to give it the time that it that it needed because it's a huge undertaking. No one is doing this for the money. So it it's really hard for a lot of people to be able to take the step to do it. So that so that's why I felt like it was important to do it. And and there were some bar- barriers, but I knew that I could do the work. So so it's imperative for me as someone with privilege to do that work. I can go next. Allison. For me, I'm in the deep southwest in a very conservative area. Which is ironic because it hasn't always been conservative. We've actually had, quote unquote, capital L and lower L liberals for decades until about 25 years ago. And then we switched completely the other direction and we've been extremely conservative. I would con- I would characterize it as that since then. And so there's definitely been... Uh, an interesting approach to how women are elected. We have never had a female MPP. We've never had a female MP, even when we had other parties representing us. We've only had one female mayor. We are an amalgamated community, which makes, which is a little different in terms of the history, but we've only had one female mayor of Chatham, which is where I am from, and one female mayor of Chatham-Kent. And this year we managed to, I'm very proud of this, but in Chatham-Kent we managed to elect the most women ever. So we broke a record for our community for women, which is eight of 17. So I still find, I found, I actually ran for mayor in the previous election and came in second in my first time. So I had a different, maybe a slightly different approach to this campaign because I was not a first time candidate. I was a second time candidate, but a first time for counselor. And I found, I still found a lot of, even just the language people would ask me, you know, are you married? When you'd be on the doorstep, because I knocked on thousands of doors. You know, do you have kids? A lot of these questions that when I would talk to male candidates, they were often not asked those questions, right? And Rarely, what do you do? You know, you're less identified by your profession. You know, oh, what does your husband think of you running? And my husband would often be right beside me. Clearly, he thinks it's fine. (laughs) But um, it was just, there's still in 2022, because this was in the candidate campaign last year, there's still this attitude of what women's identities are still tied up with and how that somehow can fit into a candidacy role. And ironically, I mean, to come back to those same questions, I actually think having those identities as a partner, as a mom, I am not a mom, but I am a partner. I think that's those are actually very valuable identities as well. So it's not to diminish those, but it's interesting how women are constantly identified as those, whether and whether or not that affects how they are going to be as a elected official is interesting, but I definitely feel, and unfortunately in, in our candidates, our campaign as well, we had one woman of color and f- about 50 candidates in total ran for the different wards. And that to me, again, I think Shauna, you raised an interesting point about women often focusing on service because one of my goals is to basically put myself out of a job. I want to pave the way. And I'm not saying this as a Pollyanna, like pat myself on the back, but like Kelsey said, when you have different voices around the table, better decisions get made. So if I can help 
a woman of color or someone from the LGBTQ community get my seat next term, I'd actually be happy to do that. I want to help open that door a little wider for everyone else. And I do think that you can never speak for all women, but I think that approach towards opening that door a little wider, putting another crack in that glass ceiling for the next, the folks who are coming behind you is actually a critical role that we should all be playing. So I find that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to run, besides all the community benefits of helping make your community a better place and my own personal, you know, ideas about our community. But we have to, I think we do come into it often with a more collaborative approach where we want to help others have these same opportunities. And that's something that's really important to me. And I've had women politicians and elected officials help me get to this point, And I want to continue that paying it forward. So that's definitely a, the pros and cons that I see it from down here in the deep Southwest. Can I go to Kate next? The question that I asked was, what kind of barriers you faced even getting elected, like running a campaign in your community? So in terms of barriers, I would say to be in this position now, I've also been at this for five years. So I ran in the 2018 municipal election and lost by 59 votes, which stuck with me for four years. 2021, there was a counselor that passed away, unfortunately. And then the process of filling a vacant seat procedurally passed, but it was to appoint the runner-up, which was myself, and that did not happen. So I think some of the barriers, which I didn't face this election per se, because I've been at it for so long, but some of those barriers were simply rejection. I started into municipal politics because I had a personal concern, and I did not like uh, the response I got when I brought it to my local council. And the conversation began of, well, I don't see myself around this table, and I don't feel represented. And my grand would say, we make our own good time. So I did uh, apply that. But you know, I would say those are my barriers would be rejection. Um, but just, you know, get knocked down 10 times, get up 11, right? What's for you won't go by you. So I would say those were my biggest, my biggest barriers. And Lindsay? What everybody else has already said, which is, you know, why we've found some support in each other, because we've shared a lot of the same challenges. But I think something else I talk to people about is, um, you know, ideally, a campaign is not just the candidate right? Ideally, the campaign is a a grassroots effort um, that takes a lot of people. Um, But when you have communities that aren't necessarily um, used to being politically active in that way, uh, it takes a bit of education around, you know, I could really use your help dropping this literature in your neighborhood. Uh, And that would really matter to me because I'm only one person and that's your neighborhood. And, you know, even that that can make someone really uncomfortable. Um, But that's an education piece about getting people to kind of, you know, rally around a candidate that they would really like to represent them. Um, So I wouldn't, you know, I've been, I was lucky. I did have lots of support, but even the support I had, it would have been wonderful to have more volunteers. And I think every campaign can say that. But like I said, you know, when you have campaigns in the past that didn't necessarily have that kind of grassroots movement, there's also kind of an education piece around what it takes to win a campaign, you know, the door knocking and and the canvassing. And quite frankly, you know, municipal campaigns rely 
in my experience so far on your own money, getting your own signs and, you know, uh, maybe a donation from your parents or something, you know, that can be a barrier. I'm lucky that was not a barrier for me, but I think about, you know, signs that cost, you know, at minimum a thousand dollars, like that alone can present barriers for other people in the future, unless you have a community that's willing to donate to campaigns to get diverse people elected. So, you know, some of the barriers I saw are, you know, educating our community around how a campaign can be a community movement and not just, you know, the effort of the candidate themselves. There's a shift that you are all creating. You're all women, you're communicating with your community. You do that really well, all of you. But there's resistance to the people that are used to doing politics a certain way by the politicians themselves who would rather kind of keep things quiet and within the council chambers. But there's also the community that aren't used to having all of this communication all the time. And, and there's, you know, nasty comments that come out of that. We, I know this, you know this. So what are your, you know, what do you think about what's happening in the shift that you're creating? It's got to wear on you. It's a lot of emotional labor. I think I took this from, from Kelsey, you know, whether it's social media, kind of laying out those boundaries of what will be tolerated and what won't be tolerated. Um, even within my city of Woodstock uh, email address, I'm happy to respond, but if there's language that's used, I just evaluate how I will respond, if I'll respond at all. So boundaries are a big one. But for, for my community, you know, um, community engagement is, is really inspiring people. And not only do I hope that that will hold the door open for other candidates. But, you know, in the last few weeks, I've just had simple conversations about the delegation process, coming before council, and whether it be a celebration or a concern, you name it, educating our residents on the process so that they feel involved. And although um, perhaps a longstanding counselor can feel that, you know, that adds more work for staff or add more, adds more work for them, you know, you're sharing the load with the residents. Right. Um, so so I would just say that community engagement is really important. And, and so far, I mean, I think we just surpassed our 100 days of being elected this week. And I feel that, you know, we're an agriculture you know, region. Uh, we are the urban core of this city. But even speaking with longtime residents about, you know, density on top of agriculture land, I mean, depending on how you phrase your your um, comments, but. You know, it doesn't have to be black and white thinking. It can be listening to people, which is which is really important. People want to feel heard, but then also being effective with with that feedback. Well, I don't want to eat up all of our farmland. Okay, well then we need to have more density and be smart with our planning on top of that agriculture. So I think it's a fine balance, which I personally think women are more inclusive of all of those opinions and are always thinking of the larger circle of how will my decision or our decision impact those around me. There's not that tunnel vision. So I'm a big fan of community engagement. And so far, um, I wouldn't say that I've run into too, too much, um, you know, negativity, but it's all what you make of it. And you do not have to tolerate anyone speaking a certain way to you and I think the more we we show that you know it's not acceptable uh then they're going to say well those words are going to fall on deaf ears so maybe they'll they'll stop doing that I'm going to call on Kelsey next because I have heard from a few folks that your example Kelsey of your boundaries have let paved the way for many 
women counselors uh, across Canada, in fact. So I'm going to let you talk next. Okay, thank you um, for saying that. That actually stemmed from when we were doing, we are very lucky in Kenora, the the staff put on a very in-depth orientation process for that. And through that, I sort of was like, you know, I had started this platform. I hadn't even been on social media prior to the campaign, but I started it for the campaign because it's such a, a great resource and a tool. And I'd created this community within it. And so I'm sitting on this, you know, asset in my mind and how do we utilize this and and you know they did a training on communication and their recommendation was to not have social media to not interact on social media or do anything on social media and I did not agree with that stance and so my thought process was then to make sure that I'm being clear because the I think the way that it had been used in the path with past was maybe a little bit traumatic for the staff you know maybe there was people who were getting on social media on like rant and rave pages and you know getting into the comments and doing that kind of thing and that was not my intention with this platform we hear the same thing about communication in Kenora all the time about you know the I don't know what's going on or, or the city's not communicating or whatever and, and so to be able to, to say I'm not the complaints department as far as operations, you know, city, and this is even just a bit of an education piece. City councillors are not in charge of the day-to-day operations of the city. And because we were so small and we had, we had the town of Kenora and it amalgamated, but you, and you have sort of the access to your city councillors a little bit more in rural municipalities than you would in say like Toronto or Vancouver, you, you see them out in the streets at the soccer games at whatever it is it's a little bit easier to say oh my plow my road didn't get plowed my potholes are on my street are nuts or whatever it is but that's not the proper way to get those things addressed like I don't have a direct path to the process to get that that address so I wanted to make sure that everyone was able to get the communication pieces at a high level but then have a better understanding of the process in order to make sure that if you have legitimate questions queries, comments, or whatever it is that they're being addressed in the proper um, channels. Because sending me a DM on Instagram is not going to get your pothole fixed. So I (laughs) want anyone to get that (laughs) perception. Allison, you said that there's the most amount of women elected in, in, in the last election. And we actually were the same. And it sort of goes back to, I know we were chatting a little bit before about data and not collecting data around uh, gender or, um, culture markers or anything like that and so it's hard to really like analyze is this the most diverse council but without going back and looking at every single council and being like well they all look like men so they must have all been men kind of thing we have four out of seven of our counselors are women we actually have the youngest council that we've had in a long time uh three of us are under 40 which actually has been a really big shift too i know we talk about the gender piece a lot but i think that the generational differences between the different age groups has been really really um big in how we communicating and engaging with our community I think speaking to what Kate said about not seeing yourself represented I always go back to we all only know what we know I have biases I have you know I'm not an expert in every single thing on the face of the planet I'm going to come at things from my lived experience and my viewpoint of the world 
And that's going to have gaps in it. And so having other people at that table who don't have my same lived experience is going to create for a more holistic, better communication and better better conversations and, and a, a, a better way of approaching things. Because I always look at it at a risk as a risk management perspective. And that's just because that's my like job, the way that I look at it for my job. But if you're sitting at a table where everyone is coming at it from the lived experience, you get into that yes feedback loop and you just don't, you can miss things that are just so obvious if you had someone else sitting at the table who had that different lived experience. But because you don't have that lived experience, it's just, you don't know. I was thinking about the communication piece and I have to say everyone on this call, I followed and admired and sometimes copied we all i think we all inform each other on social media i found so many helpful tools that everyone on this call and other women as well who shared their different perspectives on social media and even their presentation and the types of graphics and just the different things that they did was so helpful usually i think all of us probably asked each other can i you know use this and tweak it for my own purposes and everyone did like it was wonderful. There was never any, maybe because none of us were running against each other. I don't know. <laughs> but we were all very generous that I could see was sharing that. Because I think everyone had that same approach. Like we need, we want to see more women running and having the tools that they need to get to, to, to see this success. So I found that incredibly helpful. And I still follow everyone and really find it very helpful today and I know that'll continue for the next four years. I think the question that I have for myself, and I've been asking this, as Kate mentioned, we just hit our one hundred day milestone. For me, I'm I question almost every day, is this sustainable for me? Because I genuinely don't know at this point because I create videos most days. I everyone all of us do different types of social media. For me it's usually walk and talk videos. And it's very hard. It takes a lot of time to do that effectively. And there for me, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but I have received a huge amount of toxic backlash online because we had unfortunately two very, uh, shouldn't be controversial for, in my opinion, but two very controversial votes about vaccines at the beginning of our term, which should have been done last term, but it wasn't you know, move on. And that unleashed an absolute tirade for people who voted in one way and versus those who voted another. And I was one of the folks who voted in one way. And it just unleashed this absolute tsunami of harassment and abuse and threats. And just, it was absurd. Absolutely absurd. And when, when I ran for mayor, I faced a huge amount of that as well. And it to like to the point where I almost didn't run this time because I just thought I can't do that again. I can't put my family through that again. You know, I had my volunteers. I had a lot more volunteers running for mayor when I ran for mayor. By the nature of it, I had basically a handful this time, and I couldn't put anyone else through that to read through my socials and to moderate that. And it was hugely like. Even people on my team last time did not want to volunteer for me this time because they it was so toxic for them to read the abuse that I faced. And the irony is I'm still, to this day, one of the few counselors, and it's not a criticism about other counselors on my council at all, but I'm one of the few, if only, of 17 who 
who take the time to do that because it's important to me. But as a result, I am the lightning rod online for that abuse because no one else does that to that extent that I do. And I think there's a reason for that too because they don't want to put themselves through that. And I don't blame any of them, but part of my platform was more communication than less because there was this feeling that we the residents weren't getting the information that they wanted from their elected officials or staff or what have you and so i was i thought well i want to change that so i will communicate all the time and i'm finding that i don't know if i can do that i can sustain that level for the next 4 years a because it's a lot of work and i have also i you know i have a full time job and i'm also working on council issues and this takes a several hours or more a week and do i want to put up with this online hate i like it's it's really toxic and it way it wears on you day after day and i you know and i i want to say to any counselor or any elected official whether you're whatever whatever gender you identify with whatever background you are from block and delete are your absolute favorite tools none of this oh well I, she blocked me on twitter yeah i did cuz you were a total jerk like, sorry, there's no apologies anymore. Block, delete, report every time. Don't, no apologies because there is absolutely no place for that. And Kelsey's disclaimer, you know, about her boundaries was fantastic. I'm like, damn straight, you know, put that out there, set those boundaries and tell people. And I mean, really, should we have to do that? Probably not. But sadly, we do. So that communications piece is one that I am genuinely still struggling with because I also wonder too, are these the people who, from a purely strategic perspective, where are my voters? You know, when it comes to four years from now, does it matter? I mean, our voter turnout was abysmal this term. I think it was across Ontario, but I think, what am I doing all this for? Is it even making a difference then to the 300 followers or whoever, you know, however many, I don't have a huge Instagram following, for example. So is it making a difference? I I hope it is, but I have to genuinely ask myself now the sustainability piece because it, it takes a toll. It really, really does. Lindsay? A lot of the reasons why people don't use social media is because it is not without a lot of risks. You know, risks to your, um, you know, own mental well-being, risks to, you know, even being here today in, in the back of my mind, it's really important that we're all um, always coming forward with your own personal opinion. You know, we are not speaking on behalf of our municipality or on behalf of our councils. We are all just sharing our own personal experience and our communication always has to reflect that. And I think that notion scares a lot of elected leaders. Like the easier thing to do is to just not, you know, walk that fine line between, you know, speaking on behalf of anyone other than yourself. Um, but for that reason, I'm always clear in my social media to say, this is just my opinion with my lens and my experience. And, you know, I don't speak on behalf of anyone other than myself. So that's easily enough done, but I can see why, why people do, um, 
avoid it. But I think for me, to Allison's point, you know, is this really worth it? Because it is time consuming. And it is, you know, not without risk. But anytime we can share information with our residents, that's redistributing the power from us back to them. Now they have that information. It's not centralized to me. It's not just, well, it's, you know, it's on the website, go read it. I'm sorry, like we all know very well that an agenda being available online does not constitute information being accessible or available to the residents. When I'm thinking to myself, if it's worth it, I go back to the notion of redistributing the power and making sure we're not centralizing that power too much in places where it's not going to be effective. So I'm trying to think about ways that I can not just share information from an agenda package, which is important, but to Kate's point as well, you know, what is a delegation? And I keep telling people, you know, that's one of our most important democratic tools available to residents. And it is so far in my experience in the last hundred hundred days used almost not at all especially during the budget process, for example, where I would expect all sorts of people to be making delegations about things they would love to see in the budget. But if we haven't redistributed the power of that information, you know, how are people to know that a, that a delegation is even an option? So I think about my communication, not just as information purposes, what's on the agenda, what issues are we discussing, but also, you know, how can I educate the community about how to be more involved? Because I hope, you know, by the end of my term or a year from now or whatever that is, my communication right now, which is mostly one-sided, me putting the information out there, I really hope that that, you know, fosters more two-way communication in the future, because what I keep telling people, you know, I'll run into someone and I'll wonder, you know, did anyone even see that post about the budget that took me like two hours? Um, And then I'll run into someone in the grocery store and they'll say, oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad that information's out there. I really appreciate it. I didn't know you know, we had an operating and a capital budget. So I know it does make a difference. But now, you know, step two is, okay, take that information, resident in the grocery store, and, you know, think about how you can relay your issues back to, you know, myself or or the the municipality. Because what's what's great is communication. What's even better is two-way communication. And that's kind of what I really hope for at some point is making that, you know, a norm and something that residents know is a tool available to them and is so crucial to our democracy, you know, like posting on social media and complaining in the the neighborhood Facebook group is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and I know it can be, you know, cathartic sometimes. But does that affect change? Absolutely not. It really doesn't. You need to email people who are responsible for making those decisions. And so I always tell people, you know, if you've posted it in the neighborhood Facebook group because it mattered to you, you should also be sending an email to an elected official where that jurisdiction falls because, you know, complaining about it might feel really good. It might get a bunch of likes and a comment thread, but, you know, is anyone voting on it differently because of your comment? Probably not. And that's really where we need people to get is using the right channels to affect change. Successful businesses, big business in rural communities are typically the ones with the loudest voices or the most influence. But 
when you're shifting power, like you explained it, Lindsay, and putting the power back into the citizens' hands and distributing that power, you're actually changing the hierarchy of people thinking that they, that you're inaccessible, that council is is not listening and isn't accessible, and that you're here and they're way down here. So you're actually starting to let all of you in your communication are, are leveling that up. So that is actually something I can observe as somebody on the outside, seeing that you're all doing that. And that is really the first step in shifting, making systemic change. You are doing that. And Kelsey, at the very beginning, mentioned privilege. And I think all of you recognize that if there were someone who was getting in that was from a different community, from the you know Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ2S+, someone with a disability, were getting the votes and had that privilege and power and agency, you would work for their campaign. You would even give up your seat for them. But because we haven't shifted in that direction far enough where the, where the you know, balances aren't quite as even, you're standing in and taking on the emotional labor that somebody who, like a black person, has been taking on their entire lives. So you're getting a taste of what someone from an equity-deserving group faces all of the time I'm not saying I'm not taking away from it. It is awful. I see the things that people post about you to you, but know that this is like just the tip of the iceberg and you're making this it's a monumental change actually. Like you're you're shifting power dynamics and that's a big thing. Do any of you want to talk about that about the privilege and you know yeah, Kelsey, okay. Go ahead. Speaking to the piece of privilege. So, I am 33 years old, I have two babies, like a two and a one year old. And so my process with this is I'm doing this for four years. This is not my career. This is my way that I give to my community. Because as I said, at the at the beginning, I am a person with the privilege to be able to do this role. And my hope is that at the end of this term, that there are even more diverse candidates. We Gender-wise in this election, had a 50-50 split, but it was extremely white. We have a lot of Indigenous communities that surround our like geographic area and then at the and that live within our community. And we are seeing more and more diverse residents in our community recently, but I can only sort of step into it so much. It's way better if these voices are heard from the people who actually are of different backgrounds. And so my hope is that after these four years that I can take any of the resources or any of the knowledge that I've learned by doing this, because there is such a huge learning curve, just even starting to do this job and that I can download that, even though I hate that word, I've heard the word downloading more than I ever want to, but help download that onto someone who can take this on and, and do this probably way better than I can do it and hopefully be a better representative for our whole community than I will be. That is absolutely my goal. The only way that I would do, that I would run for this again is if it's still like the sort of same slate of candidates and you still need that like other voice at the table but I remember sitting in the rural and remote 
homelessness panel at um, Roma. And one of the things that the CAO from the DSAB and Cochrane Timmins said was that the things that we need to do in order to actually impact change at these levels are more than four years worth of work. Like it's stuff that needs to be done beyond our term. And I am fine if I need to be the bad guy, quote unquote, in these next four years, if it means that we have systemic change that we are able to implement and make things better for everyone, then I can be that person. I, I, I'm I, at the stage of my life, I feel like this is something that I can take on and that I can do in order to make sure that it's a better path for the, for people that are living here now and the next generation. I don't want my kids being like, why didn't you guys just invest in this then? Like, why didn't you, why are we still talking about this? Some of the things we're talking about, I'm like, why are we still talking about this? And it's because they haven't had the people in the positions of power to know that they needed to be talked about. Yeah, I would totally agree, Kelsey. I think there's two things that come up, Shauna, when you talk about privilege for me. And the first being is that we have to call it out. Like, we have to use the privilege that we have to stand up for others and with others that don't have it. Because to me, and I mean, it's, you know, it's become more and more acute over the last couple of years, but racism is not a different political view. Sorry. Uh, misogyny is not a different political view. Those are wrong. They're wrong. And you can be a liberal or conservative or an NDP or whatever political stripe, and you can still call that out. And I feel like that's something that I have to do much. I'm working on that, but I know that despite our platforms, however large or small they are, we have an obligation. I think my opinion is that we have to call it out. When we see transphobia in our communities and we see racism and misogyny, even if it's directed at us, we have to call it out because people are seeing that. I made a comment in a budget meeting last two weeks ago about dignity for people experiencing homelessness. And I didn't think it was a particularly remarkable comment, but I just felt that people experiencing homelessness deserve dignity where they live. And it's in that larger context. And someone, I had so many people, funnily enough, message me after and say, I heard you say that on, like, because our council meetings are online. Thank you for saying that. And I thought, you know, for me, it was a fairly innocuous comment that seemed quite, it seemed obvious to me. But the fact that even just moving that needle just a tiny bit to call it out, I think can empower others to call it out and to recognize that we, I I think we have an obligation. White women of privilege must play a stronger role in sharing that microphone and using the microphone and platform they have to speak out against it. So that's my first. I think really important point that I am learning and trying to do better at every day. And the second is to use the power that we have to transform our society for the better. You know, I think that social change is the job of each of us. And I'm, for example, I'm on the accessibility committee, which is to help ensure that our municipal services are accessible. And every mention of that term in many ways, it's mostly physical accessibility to buildings and, you know, day-to-day items. But to me, it's a much broader term. And I read about designing a system where you could be anyone in that system. So if you are a person of color or if you are someone with a physical disability or any number of things, if you design a system that will help serve all those different people, 
it's going to be a really well-designed system that works effectively in your community. So if you design things that help for someone in a wheelchair, well, someone pushing a stroller is going to need that too. You know, someone with a senior pulling a, their grocery cart, that's going to help them too, right? So it's not, it's so rarely in a vacuum. I wanted to share a quote that I looked up before this talk about from a black activist named Monique Melton. And she said, the folks closest to the flames are always most interested in putting it out. And for me, that means that we have to jump into that fire with them because we are not always closest to the flames. In fact, we're probably as far away from the flames as we can get. But that doesn't mean we don't have a stronger role to play in putting it out. So I think the privilege piece is something that I am trying to think about every day. And I know everyone on this call is doing a great job of that. I mean, in Ingersoll, we are incredibly lucky to have elected the first Black woman to our council, Councillor Khadija Halaru. And she also happens to be the first Muslim that we've elected to council as well. So the diversity that she represents and the lived experience that she brings to the table is crucial, of course. Um, I won't speak on behalf of her today, obviously, um, but one thing I'm also always thinking about, um, whether she uh, would have been there or not, is you know when a woman like Khadija is elected, how do we make sure that this is a space where everybody can thrive? and everybody can bring their whole selves to the table. I quite frankly don't have a, a an inkling for how we achieve that yet. I think what it comes down to is, you know, in that scenario, the only thing I control is my own actions and my relationships with, you know, my team and, and the community. And so, you know, whether I agree or not with uh, Khadija, for example, um, I'm often checking in with her to see, you know, how she's feeling, if there's any support she needs kind of thing. And that's, again, not a pat on my back, but is something that I feel like is within my control and an action that I can take to see if there's a, you know, a barrier that I'm not seeing um, that I need to speak up about. I mean, it's all sorts of privilege and representation and, and certainly um, people of color. But in, in our community lately, I think a lot about, you know, is it possible for someone from the 2SLGBTQIA plus community to get elected here? Is, I ask myself that question. Is that possible? I don't know if it is today and I hope I'm wrong and, you know, things change, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I often think about what changes would need to happen for that to be possible. And I think it has a lot to do with safety and people like, you know, me, a straight white woman speaking up and saying, you know, the things we will or will not accept. And when I ran during the provincial election, there was a lot of issues happening around um, safety and, and um, the LGBTQ community. And I, I spoke up often to say that I was an ally and that, you know, we need to recognize these things in our community. And I had a lot of people asking me, you know, aren't you afraid of, of speaking up and being really clear on where you stand? Because it doesn't leave any room for nuance, right? Aren't you afraid to speak up? It hadn't crossed my mind that I that I should be afraid, but their comment was really a wake-up call for me to say, you know, if this person who I know to be very supportive um, and actively supportive in our community thinks I should be afraid about speaking up, you know, what hope and heck do we have 
for people who are from the LGBTQ community to speak up in their own right. So I think about that conversation often, especially when it gets really uncomfortable and it would when it would be much easier to say nothing at all. I remember being a resident and and things you know were happening on all you know all sorts of scales. Um, during the pandemic and afterwards, for example, and elected leaders saying nothing. Whether they agree or not, you don't know, obviously, but it gives the impression that they're okay with whatever might be going on. And so as a resident, I felt very underrepresented when people weren't speaking up about issues that mattered to me. So when I feel really uncomfortable or when it would be easier to say nothing, I think about how much it matters to people when you do speak up. What are you hopeful about? What are some hopeful things? There's a lot of environmental initiatives. I think that we need to look towards future leaders as well, whether it be the youth. Woodstock is a interesting community where it has been a small town or small town perception for a long time, but with big city problems. And I think... I draw a lot of my energy and ideas from these wonderful humans that are on the call, but also from seeing what our neighboring municipalities are doing and then trying to apply it in my own backyard. There is a lot of change that we can that we can make effective in this in this four years as, as long as you know that uh, that team environment is hopefully working towards the same goal, right? But I would also say I hope to create change in the way that um, our downtown is, you know, 1.2 kilometers long, so it's a very long downtown, and and there are uh, expectations that it's been on the back burner for a long time in Woodstock, and a vibrant core. I mean, I'm a downtown person, so I hope to uh, make it more vibrant as well. I would say I have a long list, but inclusivity, I don't just say that. I mean that so that everybody has a place to belong, and I think accessible, approachable leadership is the first step uh, in that direction. I talked a lot about community engagement, like communication leading to more community engagement. And I really hope, you know, sooner rather than later, uh, we have a community that's really engaged in all sorts of processes. You know, we're, we're um, about to think about the committees in our community, for example. Um, and so I hope that this is a way the community can get engaged in what's going to happen here, not just in the next four years, but you know, the next 30 years. We have not yet in the past hundred days that I've been at the table, had a really serious conversation about climate mitigation and climate adaptation. And that quite literally keeps me up at night. Because we are, you know, in the time we've been on this call, running out of time to uh, to make some serious changes. So Kate and I have talked about this a lot, like learning the rule. There's the written rules and there's the unwritten rules. And the written rules are really easy to learn. It's like, you know, what you legally can and cannot do. It's the training that you get from staff. You know, it's the jurisdiction of the things that you quite literally have control over. And those are the written rules. And we get lots of training on it. You know, we're all still learning, but the written rules are there and you can look them up in the Municipal Act. The unwritten rules are the way you can actually affect change, right, in, in your community. And no one is going to tell you what those unwritten rules are, probably, unless you ask. Those come from, you know, asking questions maybe of staff or of your peers or, you know, of other people in other communities addressing the same things that you're addressing. Understanding the unwritten rules, which are usually the rules that keep things the same, 
Um, and, and thinking about, you know, how can those unwritten rules be different and what relationships will I build in the community so that we can affect change differently. There's a quote from Roma talking about truth and reconciliation. Jesse Went, the speaker, said, you know, organizations don't reconcile, people do. And he was speaking specifically to reconciliation. And I think about that a lot. I think about that in, in all of our work. Policy is there, but unless we do the work, you know, as humans in our everyday lives, policies around inclusion, for example, or policies around reconciliation are just policies. And so I spend a lot of my time not just thinking about policy, but also like the human relationships that must be in place in order for us to actually do this work around reconciliation and inclusion. So the policy can be there, but I think a lot about the behavior I want to model for our community on all of those efforts that will be there whether the policy follows or not. I think for me, I would second what Kate and Lindsay have already said for sure. I would also, I think for me, I would add that my priorities will continue to approach my term and how to keep that door open for the next term, that gender equity is a floor, not a ceiling, right? That's sort of the, to me, an easy, not easy, obviously not easy, but the first step in a wider equity lens that we can bring to everything that we do on council and beyond. So that's something that I'm going to keep trying to make a priority. The fact that we're all sitting here shows that traditional approaches don't are going to lead to traditional solutions. The fact that we're here means that the more innovation and more creativity and different ideas are already starting to percolate, which is great. Traditional can be fine, but it's not the only lens that we need to see through the whole, oh, we've always done it this way. Well, no, thanks. Let's try and do things a different way if we can. I want to keep looking at laying the groundwork because I think it was Lindsay that said, you know, a lot of our decisions are way beyond the four-year metric, right? Planting, I'm a Rotarian and a, a proud Rotarian. And one of our sayings is, you know, plant the trees that you'll never sit under. You know, you got to think longer term and really start laying the groundwork, I hope, for things, especially in our community, addressing homelessness is a, one of the reasons why I ran. But that's not a four-year project, right? That is a long-term systemic change that I hope I can help contribute to solving in the longer term. And also for me, last but not least, I'm hopeful because hope is a discipline. I'm trying to discipline myself to be more hopeful and the day-to-day piece. And Lindsay said, you mentioned climate change. Absolutely. I think we need to continue to raise the alarm bells and, and integrate that into all of our decisions. Things about moving the needle on the online hate piece, you know, that sounds very loud. So we have to speak louder and make our voices louder than those who aren't as positive online. Because I think folks who are coming to our community, we can be more inclusive, we can be more welcoming, we can be more accessible. If those voices online are positive and welcoming and inclusive, that's going to help even from a purely economic perspective. People want to move to communities where they feel welcome, where they feel seen, where they feel safe. And if we can put that message out in everything that we do online, through council decisions and through our language, through our policies, and through our relationships with everyone else, including people on this call and beyond, I think we really help make our own world a little more welcoming and positive as well. The daily 
methodical approaches are often the long-term ones that work. So that's where I'm going to be focusing my efforts for the next uh, three years and 265-ish days, however <laughs> many we have left. So I'm looking forward to continuing that and having being inspired by the women on this call to keep doing that as well, because that's been a huge, huge benefit for me. And Kelsey. Okay, absolutely a great piece to end off on, because the thing that I think we see here is, you know, we as a community have challenges, every community has challenges. I've heard this innumerable times, and uh, Kate echoing it really dinged for me was that more small city with big city problems and people say that here all the time as if we are the only community that are seeing these problems uh these challenges and i think one of my benefits as someone who's like a non-local is that i have lived in other communities i've been to other you know i've seen firsthand how the impacts of these systems that we have created because everything we have created it's all of this the way that we live in the world is subjective because this is the way that we've chosen to do it based on the way that we've set it up on years and years and years of history and so i like to think of it is that that means we have so much potential and we have there's so much room for growth and i'm really excited to be part of the council that i'm with i'm really really lucky that we have a group of people who is willing to we don't really look at ourselves as politicians. And I also feel because municipal politics is really set up more like a board structure, it's it's such a weird way of being a politician versus like an MPP or an MP, because you are, as an MPP or an MP, you are the decision holder. You are the sole person as the face. But in, in municipal politics, we work in consensus. And so I was very cautious and and diligent throughout my campaign to not promise anything because I'm only one voice, but I promised how I would show up and how I would present myself and how I would make decisions would be based on my ethics and my morals and my intelligence and my decision-making process. Like that's the things that I could promise in a campaign because I can't make any decisions on, on my own. Nothing that I say as an individual counselor has the impact to change how we do things at the city level. And I'm so grateful for the team that I work with, because I think for the most part, we all have that mentality of, I, we're just in budget right now. So I think this is just in my head, but there's historically having a 0% net tax levy has been a goal, right? Like that's something that you want to, as a politician, oh, I came in and I got the staff down to a half a percent increase. And and I've been on boards and I work for a credit union. So, you know, we have a board of directors for our credit union. And I think about if our board came to our CEO, our staff who are experts in their field, who are trained to do this, have the education to do this. And I said, you know, no, you have to come back because I needed to be at this level. Like that's not the values that I ran on. The values I ran on was that I was going to make sustainable, proactive policy decisions in order to affect change so that the next generation is going to be set up in a better place. Because as a millennial, I am of the generation who is doing worse than their parents' generation. And we are the first generation who has seen that. And I don't want to continue that pattern for the next generation. I would like to make sure that we are setting it up so that the next generation is going to do better for me. We have this thing in our society where it's like somehow success is a zero-sum 
game. If I look at this, I've lived in a lot of provinces in this country, and we have an incredibly, we are an incredibly wealthy country. Like, look at the landmass that we have as a country, and we have anyone who's living unhoused. It's because there's systemic issues in the way that we've set up this world that 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 is the case because you can't say that we don't have the resources and so so it's, that's something I like we have the resources and the we, the we have the ability to do this advocacy is so important because the only people who win by people not being engaged in the political process are individual politicians and we have this mentality of like oh, you're spending my taxpayer dollars. I'm a taxpayer. You're a politician. You're paying, you're using my money to do these things. I mean, I, I'm a taxpayer. I get property taxes. I pay income taxes. I pay sales taxes. I elect people who represent the values and the, the goals that I want to see in the world. And then I fund them through that. And so hold So a big thing that I think that, um, I will, will continue to do is to make sure that we're advocating at all levels of government to make sure that we are making the changes at this, the levels that we need to be making so that people aren't sitting in their throats, even in our count, like the way that our council tables are set up, having those set up in a way that you're just like sitting there, if no one's participating, no one's engaging, then it can be easy to make these decisions in a vacuum. And that's what I don't want. I only know what I know. I say this all the time. I only know what I know. I'm not going to know everything about everything. I'm not going to make the right decisions all of the time. And please, please, like everyone needs to get involved because this is our government. It's not us versus them. We are the government. There's just certain individuals who we elect in order to do the things that we want them to do. I think that's a great way to end. You are making change. You are making those changes. The fact that you are women and making things better through collaboration, through distributing your power and thinking in that way is already making systemic change. I live in Ontario. I appreciate you. And thank you so much for your time today. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm. And the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 